Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 49 through 59, which can be found in your church Bibles on page 872 and in your bulletin. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Father, we have the privilege of bringing the wood, but you must pour out the fire. You must set the wood of my words ablaze in order for them to make a difference in our lives. I pray that you will do that, that right now you'll pour your Holy Spirit out onto me as I speak and onto all who are here as they listen, that your Spirit would write these things onto our hearts and that they would make a difference for us now and for eternity. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. My introduction to the New Testament came by way of a high school friend named Janice, who, for reasons I can't remember, copied 1 Corinthians 13 onto a piece of notebook paper and handed it to me one afternoon, unannounced and without explanation. Likely as not, you know 1 Corinthians 13, since it's the scripture of choice at most Christian weddings. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, it begins, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Whatever her reasons, Janice chose well when she decided to copy these verses for me. I'd never read anything like it. I was bowled over by the words. I was spellbound by the sentiment, and I asked her, is there more where this came from? She answered, yes. 
and followed it up on subsequent afternoons with John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and Romans 8, nothing in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God, and 1 John 4, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and other scripture texts just like these. But, as you might have already guessed, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59, the text just read by Anne, wasn't among them. And it's a good thing it wasn't, because if she'd handed me a piece of notebook paper on which the words, I've come to bring fire on the earth, were written, or, do you think I came to bring peace? No, I tell you, but division. I'm not sure I would have become a Christian. Truth be told, I'd already had enough fire to last a lifetime by the time I met Janice in the ninth grade. My dad made sure of that. And I'd had enough of division, too. Us versus them was the subtext of countless conversations in my childhood home. The grid through which my mom and grandmother viewed everything being Jewish and Holocaust survivors was we Jews versus the world. While for my dad, a blue-collar mutt by his own account, it was labor versus management one day. Nixon versus Kennedy the next. And whites versus blacks after that, followed by a day of praise for crew-cut green berets, and contempt for long-haired, draft-card-burning hippies. Their fears, their politics and prejudices left me asking, can't all of us just get along? If I'd known that Christianity came with a forecast of fire and the certainty of division, it's possible I wouldn't have said yes to Father Jude when he asked me, would you like to accept Jesus as your king? Seven years after Janus first introduced me to Paul's love poem. I was drawn to Jesus by scriptures about God's love, the love of Christ's followers for each other and for their enemies, about peace that passes understanding, about the Christ who was himself our peace and able to unite Jews and Gentiles by destroying the dividing wall of hostility which separated them. Fire and the prospect of father against son and son against father might have sent me in search of another faith. Was it the same for any of you? I bet it was for some because the uncompromising claims of Christ, the exclusivity of Christianity, and its sober report that the world is headed toward an inevitable, fiery, cataclysmic end haven't exactly been trending in recent decades. On the contrary, they've been disparaged and consigned to the ash heap of religious history and we, being the products of our culture, can't help but have imbibed some, maybe much, of this outlook about these things. But fast forward, 
43 years and 10 months. That's how long it's been since I said yes to Father Jude's question, and I now think otherwise. I now know that 1 Corinthians 13 was only half the story, and that texts like this morning's tell the other half. 2 Peter chapter 3 is one of them. By God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, wrote Peter, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and everything in it will be burned up. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. That, as much as love is patient, love is kind, is basic to the Christian message, whether we like it or not. Not that I now take pleasure in the prospect of a fiery judgment, or that I'm ho-hum about the inevitability of division between family members, Friends, neighbors, co-religionists, tribes, different regions of a country, even between whole countries, whenever the gospel is clearly preached. I don't, and I'm not. But I now understand the rightness and the reasonableness, the need for and the justice of even the hope that's found in the fire which Jesus came to bring on the earth. And I now understand as well why and how he and his gospel divide. And I'm unembarrassed about it, at least in private, or when I'm standing in front of a sympathetic audience which gives Jesus his due, like this one. In other situations, though, when I'm standing in front of people who are indifferent or hostile to the gospel, my people-pleasing tendencies kick in, and to my shame, I downplay Christ's unbending, non-negotiable call to complete and unconditional surrender to him as Savior and Lord. Which is why I need to hear, understand, and embrace a text like this morning's, even if no one else does. But... I'm pretty sure you need to hear it too. It begins with Jesus saying, I've come to bring fire on the earth. At other times and in other places, Jesus said he came down from heaven to bear witness to the truth as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said he came to call sinners, not the righteous, to seek and save the lost, and to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, so that men and women may have life and have it to the full. In some, according to Ephesians chapter 2, he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, so that both could have access to the Father by one spirit. So what's with this fire that he claimed he came to bring on the earth? 
Some, in an effort to avoid the obvious, see it as a reference to the Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit when a violent wind from heaven filled the house where Christ's little band of post-resurrection followers had gathered and what seemed to be tongues of fire came to rest on each one of them. It's an intriguing interpretation, but the obvious is too obvious to be avoided. The fire Jesus had in mind wasn't the fire of Pentecost. It was the fire of God's fierce anger against sinners. The fruit of his infinite righteousness and zeal for justice expressed in stern and terrible judgment. As one commentator put it, it was the fire predicted by the prophet Isaiah around the year 700 BC when he declared, See, the Lord is coming with fire. And he will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people. And predicted again by the prophet Malachi around 450 BC when he declared, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. And predicted still again by John the Baptist around the year 30 AD when he said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance because the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the fire which Jesus came to bring on the earth. The same Jesus, by the way, about whom it was said he would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a flickering candle. So why him? Why is he the one who is going to bring the fire? Because he, though gentle and humble of heart by his own account, was none other than the long-anticipated son of David, an heir to David's throne, who, being king of Israel, was also the judge of Israel, and the judge of all mankind too, since Jesus was as well the incarnate Son of God and Son of Man, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and God the Father had entrusted all judgment to him so that all would honor him just as they honored the Father. Judgment is the prerogative of the king, according to the Bible. God's right To judge Israel and the nations, it contends, proceeds from the fact that he is king over all of the earth. The Lord reigns and has established his royal throne for judgment, wrote David in Psalm 9. He will accordingly judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. And Jesus being God in the flesh, rightly assumed that prerogative for himself, rightly said of himself, it is for judgment I have come into the world, and I came to bring fire 
on the earth. And having said that, he added, and how I wish it were already kindled. We may be squeamish about the fiery judgment foretold again and again by the prophets, but Jesus wasn't. He wished it was already kindled. He was ready to give the order to strike the flint, which would light the fire, which would consume the earth and everything in it. A straightforward reading of the text leaves the impression that he would have been glad to see the flames and smell the smoke, which would destroy the elements and burn up the earth. Burn up my comfortable house and yours. Burn up beautiful Bonaire and this church building. Burn up the Wegmans where I wrote most of this sermon. Burn up greater Richmond, all of Virginia, the continental United States, the seven continents and four oceans of planet Earth along with everyone and everything that's in them. Why? Why did he long for the fire to be kindled? Well, several reasons come to mind, each deserving a sermon of its own, but here's the most important one of them all. The fire Jesus came to bring would vindicate God. He wished it were already kindled because it would demonstrate decisively and unchangeably that God had been right about everything, every detail of every life, Every twist and turn of every situation, every arc of every story, every ebb and flow of all of history, and had been right all along. And it would do this because the fire Jesus came to bring would bring to light and test the quality of the life and work of every person who had ever lived. Their work will be shown for what it is, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, because the day that is the day of this fiery judgment will bring it to light. The fire would prove that God's commandments and counsel were righteous, his dealings just, and his ways altogether holy, holy, holy. But more, it would also prove that God cared. Even when it seemed otherwise, even when the fig tree didn't bud and there were no grapes on the vines, even when there were wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in various places, even when the love of most was growing cold because of the increase of wickedness, even when white men were enslaving black men, even when German Jews were being rounded up and herded into concentration camps, even when powerful men were forcing unwanted sex on women, even when victims of political injustice were languishing in prison cells or forced to flee their homelands in search of safety, even when children were being abused and traumatized in immigration detention centers, even as abortion mills were ending the lives of thousands of unborn children. Jesus wished that the fire he came to bring were already kindled because it would prove once and for all time that God had not been indifferent, had never been indifferent to these evils and so many more, or to the evildoers who perpetrated them. Evil would be punished. Wrongs would be righted. Because 
He is a righteous judge and a judge who feels indignation every day. As David asserted in Psalm 7, verse 11, after pleading earlier in the psalm, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. You know, it's often said that our culture doesn't want an angry God of judgment. That our age wants nothing to do with a wrathful God who will wield battle weapons against unrepentant oppressors, abusers, tyrants, and despots. But in a world full of atrocities and suffering like ours, all of us know better. Deep down, we know that it would be the worst of tragedies if God was an indifferent judge who never condemned, never punished, never dealt with the crimes of the world, if he was, in the end, no judge at all. Deep down, we know we need a God who will one day vindicate his name and his reputation in fiery judgment just because he is the God who felt indignation every day. You know, the vindication of God, there was nothing Jesus wanted more than that. The central concern of his life, because it is the central concern of the Bible and all of history, was the vindication of God's name. When a vision of heaven was given to John, the writer of Revelation, he saw and heard angels and saints saying, You are just in your judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, Jesus lived for that song. The vindication of God was his passion, for which reason he groaned, how I wish the fire were already kindled. But it wasn't. Why not? Well, the question's a legitimate one. In fact, John the Baptist wondered the same when he felt the need for a little end-time fire while languishing in Herod's prison cell. Are you the one to come, or should we expect another? He asked Jesus. After all, he reasoned, I told everyone that the axe was already at the root of the trees. And every tree that didn't produce fruit would be cut down and thrown into the fire. But here I sit, while Herod's mouth lays claim to heaven and he arrogantly threatens oppression. What gives? Well, one thing gave. One very, very important thing. Before Jesus could kindle the fire he came to bring, he had to undergo a baptism. And he was under constraint until it was completed. So verse 50. This baptism wasn't a water baptism, for he had already been baptized with water by John, his forerunner. And it wasn't a baptism of the Spirit either, because he had already been baptized by the Spirit right after being baptized 
by John in the River Jordan. No, the baptism he had to undergo was neither of these. It was rather an experience of that same fire that he came to kindle. He called it a baptism because, as one commentator put it, his sufferings were so many and so large, it was, as it were, he was covered with them. Betrayal, arrest, a kangaroo court, a bogus verdict based on trumped-up charges, a cruel beating, crucifixion. Becoming sin for the sake of sinners, drinking the cup of God's wrath for the sake of those who'd rejected him, absorbing the white-hot wrath of God's fiery judgment for our sakes as the Father turned his face away from him and he was left alone, utterly alone. For this he came into our world before he came to bring fire in order to take up our pain and bear our suffering, to be forsaken by God so that we would not be forsaken. My God, my God, he cried out, why have you forsaken me? Well, he had forsaken him because it was his father's will that he suffer so for the sake of people who would otherwise be consumed by that end time fire. People who, like everyone else, had followed the ways of this world and gratified the cravings of their flesh and indulged its desires and thoughts and, like the rest, were by nature objects of God's wrath. You know, whether that enslaved anyone or not, or helped to hurt neighbors into trains headed for death camps or not, or taken sexual advantage of someone or not, or struck a child in anger or not, or aborted a baby or not, didn't matter. Because they, like everyone else, ignored, or tried to buy off, or rip off, or oppose God in order to play God. And they were ruled by self-interest and self-promotion and self-advancement at the expense of others and as such needed to be delivered from the coming fire as much as history's worst tyrants. Which is just what God did when he demonstrated the unexpected extent of his righteousness in the death of his son so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus, as Paul explained in Romans 3. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to end all of God's anger against us, as the New Living Bible translates that passage, and then goes on to say he used Christ's blood and our faith as the means of saving us from his wrath. In this way, he was being entirely Fair, even though he didn't punish those who had sinned in former times because he was looking forward to the time when Christ would come and take away those sins. So Jesus had a baptism to undergo and was under constraint until it was completed. And completed he did, crying at the last, it is finished. And that done, he could at last 
kindle the fire he came to bring, right? Right. But he didn't. And he still hasn't. Because he graciously, generously, mercifully wants to give men and women from other generations and all lands a chance to interpret this present time and judge what is right, as he urged his listeners to do in verses 54 through 59 of our text. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, he said. Well, how is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? And then follows his teaching about reconciling with an adversary to avoid being brought before a judge who might otherwise throw you into prison. Now, clearly, he hadn't suddenly switched topics in order to give his listeners a little piece of practical, pro bono legal advice. Rather, he was urging them to take advantage of what he was about to do for them. He was imploring, chiding, admonishing, even shaming them to look and see that he was the Messiah foretold by the prophets who would be punished by God and numbered among the transgressors so that they wouldn't be. The adversary in this little parable is the law of God by which the sinfulness of our sin is revealed. It's got a case against us and it's dragging us to the magistrate and the judge who can turn us over to the officer who can throw us into a prison from which we won't get out until the last penny is paid. Well, that's God. But Jesus, as much as argued, the last penny will soon be paid by me for you. If you'll only judge for yourself what is right and admit that you're a candidate for the fire and accept that I have come to save you from it. Believe that and accept that I'm about to cancel the record of debt that stands against you with its legal demands. I'm about to set it all aside, nailing it to the cross when I'm nailed to the cross, so that you who are dead in transgressions and sins may live, so that you who would otherwise be burned up in the fire of God's wrath may pass through unscathed, Believe in me and the flames will not harm your bodies. Not a hair of your head will be singed. Your clothing won't be scorched. There'll be no smell of fire on you. Now fast forward a few months after Christ made this appeal. And then a few years and then a few centuries. And you'll see how his other word about coming to earth to bring division as well as fire came true. For some judged rightly for themselves, as he encouraged them to do. They admitted their need for a Savior, and they found refuge from the coming wrath by accepting Jesus on his terms, while others didn't. And those who didn't, in their unbelief and pride, sometimes tolerated, sometimes opposed, sometimes oppressed, sometimes killed those who did. So that five and one family were divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. You know, the same friend who copied 1 Corinthians 13 onto a piece of notebook paper for me 
invited me to attend a youth group retreat with her several months later. I went and I took communion along with everyone else on the last day of the retreat. Not because I believed in Jesus, but because I wanted to impress Janice. But another girl, on seeing me take communion, thought it meant I had crossed the line, that I'd given my life to Jesus and become a Christian. And she excitedly wrote a note that celebrated my conversion, a note which I indifferently left sitting on my bedroom desk when I emptied my pockets that night because I hadn't become a Christian. Only my Jewish mom didn't know that when she saw the note and read it the next day. Most of my clothes and personal items were sitting on our front porch when I got home from school that afternoon. And I was given an ultimatum. Tell me you're not a Christian or find somewhere else to live. Now, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. My situation was easily remedied. I explained the note, told her I hadn't converted. That would come six years later. And was allowed to sleep in my bed that night. For countless others, though, perhaps even for some of you, the division, the divide, is much deeper and much more costly. Some lose their families, their friends, their vocations, and their homelands when they throw their lot in with Jesus. Some even lose their lives. But if we could ask them, they would tell us that it was worth it. Because in the end, they would say, there are only two kinds of people in God's eyes. Those who have taken refuge in Jesus against the coming day of distress and those who haven't. How about you? Are you in? Or are you out? Whose side are you on? That's the most important question that anybody could ever put to you. And the answer is the most important answer you could ever give. Don't. Go to sleep tonight before you've settled it for yourself. Jesus came to earth to kindle a fire, and it will be kindled. When it's kindled, won't you want to find yourself in him? Let's pray. Thousands of years have passed since you, Jesus, said these words. And those years have passed because you are patient. And your patience is intended to lead us to repentance. Now's the time when we can judge what is right. We can throw down our sin, we can raise the white flag, we can surrender to you and say, have us, we want you, be our king. And then, Lord, you become for us 
a fortress, a refuge against that awful day. Because of which we can say with the whole church throughout the ages, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In your name we pray. Amen.